You heard the word this morning, God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. We'll get to that, to that simple yet profound sermon in a sentence in a few moments towards the end of the sermon. But I want to remind you about some things here as we conclude this series on, on courage. Most of the time, it seems to me, for many of us anyway, our lives are lived between fear and faith. Several years ago, Julie and I were on a plane coming back from Southern California. Our two boys were with us. They were much younger then. We had to fly through Dallas-Fort Worth before we could come on on the final leg to home, though. And when we took off from Dallas, there were thunderstorms all around and immediately on ascent. I mean, not much more than a, a few moments after we lifted off the, the runway, the plane began to bump and to bounce. There was turbulence. It seemed to be a crosswind or something because the, the wings were dipping like this on both sides of the plane. It was really kind of frightening. I'm not very much of a, of a fearful fly, flyer these days, but it was a frightening experience. However, I had a magazine. I was reading Sports Illustrated or something, and I just kept reading and reading. I think I read the same paragraph five times. <laughs> when suddenly Nate, who was seated not right next to me, Julie and our other son Stephen were across the aisle, Nate suddenly said to me, Dad, and he said it in a loud voice that everyone on the plane could hear, Dad, how can you be reading? We're about to die. <laughs> I took a deep breath and said in a calm voice, we're going to be fine, don't worry about it. He said, Dad, you're a preacher, do something religious, please, would you? <laughs> I tried to say something else in a calm voice. By then, most of the plane was laughing, and it was okay. It gave us a moment to, to, to relax a little bit in, in, in the bounce and, and all, of, all of the rest. It's John Rortberg who, who, who inspired me with that beginning, that, somewhere, that we live most of our lives somewhere between fear and faith. Several years ago, Julie and I met a, a couple, husband and wife, who fly for Delta Airlines. He's a pilot, she's a flight attendant. And I brought up this story and got to talking about it a little bit, and, and he, he assured us, you know, you need to know this. Every pilot goes through intensive trainings. They just go through hours, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of hours of flying, training, to ensure you one thing, that we get you from here to there safely. He even kind of got emotional. He said, it's my mission in life to carry people wherever they're needing to go. Some I know are traveling to a funeral. Others are on their way to vacation or home or business, work or whatever. It's my job to make sure you get there safely. I don't know about, about you, but ever since I had that conversation with, with him, I'm no longer really afraid to fly. I know that the, the pilots at the front are doing everything they can to make sure that all those of us in the back will make their way safe to home. But it does seem, it does seem like we live our lives between fear and faith. Peter, who's the focus of this, this final series on courage, is really the, po the poster child for, for a life lived between fear and faith. There are times when he looks and acts like a frightened little boy, like an arrogant little bully. You know, by the way, don't you, that most bullies have a terrible self-esteem. Most of the time, they make fun of others and mock them because they themselves are afraid. You'll see the fear that's at the center of who they really are. This was true in Peter's life. Maybe it's true for many of us or those that you might know. There are other moments, though, in Peter's life when his fear is overwhelmed by his faith. And suddenly he's filled with courage and, and great strength and becomes one of the most marvelous preachers we've ever heard on this planet. Matthew's gospel story tells about one of these times when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. 
Jesus has gone to the mountains to pray, and suddenly a storm comes raging across the sea, and the disciples are, are frightened for their lives. The waves are large, the wind is strong, but they look out across the, the water, and they see what some of them think is a ghost. And Peter says, no, it's the Lord. And as Jesus is walking by, by the way, that phrase walking by is, is written in such a way in the Greek that it implies an invitation. It's as though Jesus is saying, why don't you come with me? It's a visual parable. Don't get caught up in the literalness of the story. What we have here is a visual parable of Jesus in the midst of the storm inviting the disciples to walk with him. Peter calls out and says, Lord, command me to come to you and I will. And, and Jesus says, come ahead. It's a beautiful example of his faith to move out into the storm, into the middle of the, of the raging waves. Like I said, it's a, it's a visual parable. It's a way of asking, are you ready to go with me? It's a way for God to say, are you, are you willing? Is your faith strong enough, deep enough, ready enough to get up and, and go with me? And the one who gets it in this moment is Peter. He asks for Jesus to call him. Jesus says, come ahead. Come ahead. What Jesus is asking Peter and the disciples to do is the same thing he's asking us to consider. I don't care if you're 5 or 95 or somewhere in between. Are you stuck in your boat? Are you sitting back looking for the safe way, the easy way, the don't make me get off the couch and pay attention way? Are you just wanting to veg for the day and just not really think about any of this stuff? That, I, I understand. Sometimes we just need to do that. Sometimes we just need a day to, to kick back and, and relax. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next series on, on Netflix of House of Cards. When it comes out, Julie and I love to watch that. Sometimes we watch it all, all eight episodes in a single day. We just sit down in the basement and turn it on and go from there. I, there's good times for that, for sure, but sometimes... There is this call, maybe it's in most of us. There is this call within our souls that invites us to do something with our lives, to give ourselves in a way that we just know matters. Peter sees Jesus on the water, and in that singular moment, it becomes crystal clear. He wants to follow God. He sees that there is no storm too great, no wave too high, no challenge too terrible that isn't willing to take on, to move on in front of. His fear is finally overwhelmed by his faith. Now, you might remember, however, that, that he begins to sink. He takes a few steps, and he begins to look down and sees the waves and the wind, and, and he begins to lose his position, and Jesus has to save him. Now, you can imagine the disciples in the boat saying, what did you expect, dummy? It's water. You're not Jesus. What are you trying to do? Walk out there. Who do you think you are? We're safe and sound here in the boat. That's what you should have done. But I wonder. I wonder if Peter might have said back to them, you know what? Yeah, I did start to sink, but I had a moment. I had a moment when my faith overwhelmed everything else, and I was fully alive. I was walking on the water. You can critique and criticize. I can imagine Peter saying, but I got out of the boat. I took a risk. I took a chance. Peter showed deep courage in his willingness to follow Jesus no matter what. You know, let's pause there for a moment. You know, I think one of the easiest things to do is criticize another. This last week, I was staying up late watching a football game, texting back and forth with my brother out on the West Coast, criticizing the coach. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? And my brother wrote back and said, so, Pastor Miles, do you have a game plan ready? It's so easy, isn't it? 
to sit on the sidelines while the others are in the arena struggling and wrestling and fighting and doing whatever it is, whether it's in sports or in life, in politics or in government, school or at work. It's so much easier to sit on the sidelines and point fingers and say, oh, they don't really know what they're doing. This extends well beyond, well beyond the athletic arena to all arenas, really. Uh, Martin Marty's a great, a great writer and a, a theologian, a church historian. He wrote once to preachers and said, if you ever have to review another one's work, whether a sermon or a book, he said, I want to quote him, when reviewing a book especially, remember that even a bad book is hard to write. There's truth there. Perhaps you remember this quote from, from Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Are you sitting back in the boat too afraid to dare greatly, to love deeply, to live courageously? Peter looks down. He sees the water, he feels the wind, he swallowed up by fear, but do not criticize his failure. He took a chance, he took a risk, and even if only for a moment, he gave his trust to God. Where in your life do you need courage for whatever it is? Where in your home, in your work, at school, do you need faith, trust? What will it take to get you out of the boat? To take that step. Now, if you say that you'd like for fear to go away, I I have some bad news. If something really matters in life, there'll be fear. It'll never really go away. Real courage acknowledges the fear and moves forward anyway. Uh, Oftentimes, right back over here, just to my left, you can see that door there. That's the doorway to the sacristy. That's where our elders and deacons prepare communion each week, and there's some other things that are stored back in that space. Oftentimes, that's where the pastor and the groom and the groomsmen gather right before the bridal party comes down the aisle. We listen for the change in music. When the music changes, we come walking out, and we stand over here at the end of the aisle waiting for the, the bridesmaids and the bride, of course, to come down the aisle. Oftentimes, in fact, almost every time I'm back there with, with that group of guys, one of them will say, so, uh, uh, pastor, do you... Do you ever get nervous before a wedding? Or how many have you done? I said, well, I've done, I don't know, close to 300, I think. I haven't quite added them all up, but I think it's around there. Really? Well, then you don't get nervous anymore, right? Are you kidding? My heart pounds. My sweat, my, the, my brow gets a little sweaty every single time. Really? Why? Because what we're about to do is celebrate the most important moment in that couple's life. And if that doesn't make you a little nervous, give you a little bit of fear, then you're not ready to go. The things we do in life that matter the most will always make our our heart rate go up just a little, cause the sweat to form on our brow. If you're waiting for that fear to go away, for that worry to disappear, you'll never get out of the boat. Fear. Real fear. But the fear that that comes with living a life that matters never really goes away. But sometimes, though, this, this fear can 
it, it can overwhelm us. And when that happens, we all too often miss the beautiful opportunities that are right around us. Peter acknowledged and showed great faith, tremendous courage when he stepped out into the storm. But a couple chapters later in Matthew's gospel, there's a story where Jesus is describing to Peter and to all the disciples of Christ the terrible things that are about to happen, the difficult road he's going to have to follow on his way to the cross. And Peter just demands and says, no, Lord, we we can't let that happen. I'll defend you. I'll fight for you. I'll stand up for you. And Jesus looks at him and, and gives him a Middle Eastern curse. Get thee behind me, he says. Get behind me, Satan. You're representing evil. When fear shuts our faith down, when fear causes us to not see God's way, it's as though evil is raising its ugly head. Peter's fear causes him to look for the easy path, the the simpler way. Fear, masquerading as bravado, gets in Peter's way again on the night that Jesus is betrayed. Peter arrogantly declares that he'll defend Jesus against all odds, but Jesus, and I think his voice is soft. Jesus, in a soft voice, as the sun is setting and darkness is falling, says Peter, before the sun rises tomorrow, you'll deny me three times. No, Lord, no, no, no way, that won't happen, no. Before the sun rises, you'll deny me three times. You might recall the story, Jesus, Peter is challenged by three different persons, including the maid, and even the little maid, a little girl he can't stand up to. And he denies his Lord. Jesus' death is a, is a terrible tragedy, but Peter's denial is perhaps even worse Worse, worse than that. His friend needs him. His friend wants him to stand with him in this terrible moment. And surely the scar of that, of that denial must haunt Peter on the days following the, the crucifixion. But sometimes, though, the doorway to new life goes through tragedy, goes through fear and those frightening moments. The very terrible thing that happened became the place where Peter could move forward and experience something new in God. Listen to Marjorie Suhaki. She was the dean at Claremont when I was a student there. She writes, The edges of God are tragedy. The depths of God are joy, beauty, resurrection, life. Resurrection answers crucifixion. Life answers death. After the resurrection experience, Jesus confronts Peter not with condemnation, but with forgiveness. The tragedy has led to forgiveness. It's weeks now after the resurrection. Jesus and Peter are on, on, the, on the shore. They're enjoying a little bit of a breakfast in Jesus three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, yes, yes. That, too, is one of the bravest things Peter did, to acknowledge his need for forgiveness. Sometimes one of the most difficult things we can do with our spouse, our partner, our friend, child, or a parent, is to simply say, I'm sorry. Anyone who fails to say that they are sorry, to admit, to admit that they are in need of forgiveness, is frankly not really an adult. And again, they're held down by some deep-seated fear. Peter faces that fear and finds the courage to become the first great preacher in the church. You remember the story from Acts chapter 2. We call it the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and said, Men and women of Judea, 
And he preached this amazing sermon, inviting everyone, Medes and Parthians, Romans and Persians. He names all of the cities, all of the countries all around the Mediterranean. As far as he's concerned, the entire world is named in that sermon, inviting anyone and everyone to experience the love of God. But even still, after Peter delivers that sermon, it takes him a few more months before it finally starts to really get what he's saying. You see, he's, he's been called by God to go see Cornelius. That's what we get to in chapter 10 in the text that Mary read for us a few moments ago. Cornelius is a centurion in the Roman army. He's a, a, an officer in the occupying army. He's an enemy of Israel. For Peter to go to his house is to go and walk into danger. And Peter says to the Lord, no, I can't go there. Those people are unclean. The food they eat is unclean. I can't be a part of that. And yet the vision says, no, no. In the dream, Peter understands. God's love is given to everyone. Through the power of forgiveness, through the ability of facing his fear, discovering his faith, Peter finally understands that God shows no partiality. None. A few years ago, I had lunch with a community leader. I will mention his name. We were having a discussion about the needs of, of the neighborhood nearby here. And after a while, he said, Pastor Miles, you need to realize I live in the real world, he said. And I've heard that before, by the way. So I live in the real world, unlike where you live in the church. I live in a world full of problems and issues and things. We know how to take care of this stuff. And I smiled and said, yes, I understand what you're saying. But the real world is the one that God is inviting us to live in now. The real world is the one we talk about on Sunday mornings in our chapel, in our, in our sanctuary. The real world is the one that God has been inviting us to, to move toward for thousands and thousands of years. What we see on the outside is but a mirage compared to the reality of God's grace and love and forgiveness given not just to us but to the world. What we're doing here this morning is a reflection of the reality of living in God's inclusive love. When we gather here, we're saying God shows no partiality. When we welcome anyone and everyone, when we, when we aren't concerned about their sexual orientation, whether they're male or female or anything else, we're saying to all who will listen here in this place is a reflection of the real world, of God's world. Sometimes, I know, our relationships together in the church can be bumpy. There, there can be some 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 turbulence along the way. We might look across the aisle or, and, and wonder, boy, are we going to survive? Are we going to get through this? But the promise of Scripture, the promise of the one we name Lord, is that when we allow our faith to overwhelm our fear, we can face anything, anything. For indeed, God's love trumps our worst fears while inviting us to the depth of joy. Amen.